So what is love? What is love? Besides being a song, a very popular song from the 90s, um, let's just all acknowledge that and get that out of our heads, if that's ever possible. It was in my head all week long, I must confess, as I was working on this sermon. But just let's just get it done and over with. It was a very popular song from the 90s. And those of you who are younger, you don't know what I'm talking about, but it's okay. Um, besides being that song, the phrase, what is love, is, was also the most Googled phrase in 2012. Why 2012? I don't know. But in 2012, it was the most Googled phrase. What is love? There have been books written, movies made, and wars fought over this question. And people have spent years and lifetimes trying to find the answer. What is love? And I'm looking forward to seeing what each of you said uh, love is. We'll get a chance uh, in a little bit to discuss, and maybe you can share with one another what you put down. And as Daryl said, many people would define love differently based on their experiences, their backgrounds, their expertise, um, where they're coming from. And I would like to present a definition of love today from a Christ-centered worldview, um, which is the worldview of the Bible, and to be able to look at what is love from there. And the definition comes from a passage that is very well known from a letter from Paul to the Corinthians written about 56 A.D., which is about 25 years since the death and resurrection of a man named Jesus Christ. We've been doing uh, for a few weeks now, ever since the beginning of this year, a series on the history of the church. So we've been looking at how did this Christian church as we know it today evolve from just a small group of people who witnessed the life and ministry of a man named Jesus who turned out to be God. Um, small group of people, and how did they organize themselves into a church? How did they grow to be a global movement? How do we uh, come today, and we'll get to this in the future, to the different denominations and the different groups that exist? And uh, we've been looking at how um, and why they organized, and how thousands of people were added to the church, and we looked at how, as a result of that, they were being persecuted by the status quo religious leaders as well as the political leaders of the time. And we saw, I think it was last week, that as a result of the persecution, this group actually multiplied. Instead of being stifled, it actually grew and spread. And one of the regions that it spread to from Israel, from Jerusalem, from the center of the Jewish uh, world out into the rest of the Roman Empire, one of the places that it went to was a city named Corinth. Now, this is a, a picture of the ruins of Corinth. So obviously back then it was quite a vibrant city of and this is kind of funny, scholars estimate between 100,000 to 600,000. Big difference, but they can't quite agree on which one it was, and uh, none of us were there, so we don't know. But it was a big city, even for 100,000, that's a huge city for back then, um, a huge metropolis, and actually it was the capital city of the uh, Roman province of Achaia, which was a territory that included nearly all of Greece. So it was a big city, it was a very important city. And if you look at the geography of where Corinth is located, the reason it was so uh, populated and such a great city was because it was, as you can see, in between two major bodies of water, as well as two main parts of land. So it was a great trading place, a place where a lot of people would come by boat or by uh, camel um, to be able to come and trade, exchange ideas, exchange, um, exchange their religious, cultural ideologies. Now, in the city of Corinth, um, in addition to being next to these bodies of water, there was also a mountain 
a mountain that was 580 meters high, named Acro Corinth. And this mountain served as the citadel of the city, and it's recorded that this fortress was so secure that it was never taken by force until the invention of gunpowder. So that's pretty impressive that for thousands of years, you could not penetrate this place. So like I said, Corinth was a very powerful, very wealthy, very um, multi-ethnic um, populated city, kind of like Melbourne. And it's interesting because on top of this mountain, in addition to being kind of a, um, a commercial center, it was also a religious center because there was a mountain. On the top of the mountain, they had a temple to the goddess Aphrodite. And as you know, Aphrodite is the goddess of love. Now, what was their definition of love? How did they worship this goddess of love? Well, sadly to say, um, it wasn't with chocolates and flowers. It was with temple prostitution. So they would have um, at this particular temple over a thousand um, temple prostitutes. And that was their worship of love. The people would come and they would have um, sacred prostitution there. Um, and they would pay, of course, you know, in order to have that. And that was their worship to the goddess Aphrodite. And I see someone being like, what? And yes, um, that was the worship of love. That was the worship of love. Um, and I think some of us would agree that, that that idea of what love is hasn't evolved that much to some people um, even today. But that was, at that time, definition of love and what it meant to worship love. And a lot of it was had to do with fertility, that if you went and worshipped Aphrodite, that your love life would go well, you would be able to have children, etc., etc., in fact, the city of Corinth was known for such um, sexual, um, you know, deviant slash debauchery kind of a thing that a Corinthian girl was synonymous to a prostitute. And so that was how Corinth was. It was the Las Vegas of the ancient world. And this was the context to which Paul, a Jewish convert to Christianity, wrote a letter to a group of Christian believers living in this city. And even the church was not like the fortress of the mountain. And a lot of the kind of the ideologies about love and about relationships crept into um, the church. And Paul had lived in the city of Corinth for 18 months himself. And so he understood what the culture was. He understood the challenges. Um, and after he had left, he had heard how the church um, were practicing. Sadly, um, Excuse me. Not just what the Corinthians were doing, but even worse, some of the believers were actually practicing incest. Um, and so he writes the letter of First Corinthians in order to tell them, "Hey, what you're doing is wrong, and there is there is another way." And I think we need to be honest um, about the reality that the church is not a place of perfect people, um, a place where you know we are so different. From everyone else. I think we have to accept the reality that the church is a place where we come as we are and we learn about a God who is very different from we are. And through that relationship building of getting to know this God, that we are changed slowly but surely, but in that process, we will never be perfect. We'll never be a perfect church. There will never be a church that has everyone who um, is everything that a Christian should be. 
And the church of Corinth was no different. And so even though, remember, this is 56 AD, this is relatively early on in the history of the Christian church. It was not that long ago that we saw this beautiful, harmonious church where everybody was sharing everything they had and were praying together and receiving the Holy Spirit and, you know, like really taking care of each other. And then very quickly, we found out there were some disputes about the Gentile widows not receiving what the Jewish widows were receiving. Already there were some ethnic divides, and then um, there were some people in the church stealing some money that belonged to the church, and then, boom, here we are. We get to this church where they are experiencing um, sexual um, things going on, um, the corruption that crept into the church. But in addition to that, they also were facing um, fractions and favoritism within the church. So some people said, you know, we're with Paul's camp. And other people said, no, we're with Apollos. And they were just picking sides. Um, and some of the members were suing each other. So if you think about that, our churches today are doing really well. <laughs> but um, it is in this context, and it's to this church, that Paul writes this famous passage that we know today. I'll read it for you. And maybe for you, it's your first time hearing it. Paul wrote, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. What a profoundly poetic passage in the middle of a letter addressing incest and favoritism, and fighting and suing one another. What is this passage doing in a letter written to a church like that? Is Paul just rubbing it in like, this is exactly what you're not, folks? Or is he describing something that is impossible to achieve? Is he just holding up a mirror and making them feel really bad about all the ways they have failed? How did the Corinthian believers feel as the messenger read this letter out loud to them? Did they hang their heads in shame? Or were they inspired? And when we hear this passage, what is our response? There's a man named Dr. Uh, Parker J. Palmer. Hard to say that, only one. Parker J. Palmer. Um, he's an American uh, founder and senior partner of the Center for Courage and Renewal. Uh, he's a world-renowned writer, speaker, and activist who focuses on issues in education, community, leadership, spirituality, and social change. And he talks about his term called tragic gap. And he defined tragic gap as the gap between the hard realities around us and what we know is possible, not because we wish it were so, but because we've seen it with our own eyes. This tragic gap, in other words, this gap between what we, what we know can be and what it actually is. For example, the tragic gap that exists in a romantic relationship. You expect to be at the restaurant, adoringly looking at each other's eyes, sharing your deepest intimate thoughts, laughing at each other's jokes, but instead the reality is you just had a fight, you're looking at your phones, silently waiting for the food to come. Or the tragic gap uh, between the family members. You know, instead of the Cosby family, instead of that perfect family where the father and the mother and the kids are all, you know, having to have open communication, and instead the reality of your family, 
of perhaps your family not seeing each other for years at a time. Um, and when they do see each other, you wish not to see them for years at a time. The tragic gap that's in our own self-actualization of, you know, the vision of the calm, collective, um, collected, cool, competent person in the workplace is replaced by the frustrated total meltdown that is happening. Or the tragic gap that's in our church community, instead of that group of people who are genuinely praying together and, and caring for each other, um, coming and sitting with masks on and not truly letting each other in. Or the tragic gap in our society of, in one house, you've got individuals who don't have enough you know, car park space for all their cars, and the next door, they can hardly pay their bills on time to feed their kids. There is this tragic reality between what we wish or know can be and what actually is. And Palmer, uh, Dr. Palmer describes these gaps as tragic, not because they're sad, although they are sad, I think, but because they're unresolvable. In other words, no relationship is perfect, no person is perfect, and so it's in, inevitable that, that there is going to be a gap between what we know can be and what is. But what I like is that Dr. Palmer says, even though there is this tragic gap, first, let's accept it. But secondly, he says, let's have the courage to stand and act in the tragic gap. And he himself is a Christian, and he says, and we can do that because there is something that bridges uh, the tragic gap. And I think that's what Paul is getting at. Because if you look at what Paul is describing here in First Corinthians 13, he doesn't say love should be, let me go back to it, love should be kind. He doesn't say, I wish love were patient. He doesn't say, oh, it'd be nice if love didn't envy. He doesn't describe kind of a wishful thinking, nor does he describe kind of a demanding, um, there is no imperative in this passage. There is no, you shall love this way. And so this passage is actually not talking about our failure, or it's not even talking about this pie-in-the-sky, unrealistic, abstract ideal and philosophy. Instead, Paul says, love is kind. Love is patient. Love is not easily angered. And so what is Paul talking about? He is talking about something that currently exists, that existed in his day, and that is, is that kind of verb that is always is, right? Like, I am a woman, nothing will change that. Well, most nothings will change that. And so the idea of is, is that it just always is. It's, it's a, um, infinitive verb type of is. And so when he's describing love is kind, love is patient, what does he mean? And if you look a little bit closer and you look at how he describes love, it isn't just this philosophical you know, noun uh, descriptions of love. It's not just love is feeling. It's not love is you know, principal decision and commitment. Instead, he personifies love. He says love doesn't get angry. Right? He says love does not keep record of wrong. And he personifies love precisely because he's describing a person the person of Jesus Christ. If you look in the first letter of Corinthians, Paul mentions Jesus Christ 65 times. It's a short book, uh, letter, really. 
65 times. And if you look at the overall writings of Paul, and there are quite a few in the New Testament, um, which is a binding of the different letters and, and books that were written after the death and resurrection of Jesus. All the different writers, and especially Paul, talk about the love of Christ. And um, this is not the only time that Paul interchanges the word love for Jesus. In fact, if you look in uh, Colossians 3.14, he says to put on love. And in another place, Romans 13, 14, he says, put on Christ. And it's very similar phrases that he's using. And so he uses love and Jesus interchangeably. Not to say that Jesus is just love, but the the perfect love, um, the love that he's describing here, the personified love, is Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ bridges the tragic gap between what we hope to be and who we are, between the love we want and the love that we currently have. He is at the center of it all, saying, I love you like no one can, and I will help you love like no one can. And then someone's love for you falls short. God is there to say, that's okay, because that is all they can do. That is the tragic reality, but it's all right, because my love can fill that gap. And when we fail, God also says, that's okay. My love is there to help you go and seek forgiveness and to learn to love better. When uh, Roy and I were dating before, when we were in America, um, and, you know, we had known each other as colleagues, but we it's very different when you actually start dating as a couple, right? The dynamics totally changes. And um, we're very different. Our personalities are very different. And so we actually had a lot of conflict, a lot of conflict over stupid things that I can't even remember what. And it wasn't like conflict like, oh, you did this and I can't believe it. Not like that, but I would say something and he would totally misunderstand what I said. And like one time I asked him for gloves and he brought me firewood. <laughs> That's a story for another time. Um, actually, I will tell you because it's funny. Like we went to this place, it was really cold and I called him and I was like, can you be my gloves? I left them in your car. And he's like, yep, yep. And and he comes and um, I'm like, hey, where are my gloves? He's like, gloves? He asked me for firewood. He opens the boot of the car and was like loaded with firewood. And somehow in his mind, he heard gloves and thought, I must keep my woman warm and like brought wood to like make a fire. But anyways, um, <laughs> so things like that would happen where we totally just missed each other. Just, just we're speaking English, but we would just totally misunderstand each other's intentions. And so we would have a lot of conflict. And um, I remember one time I just thought to myself, man, is this is this worth it? And you know, is this really going to work? And does he really love me? And and do I really want to love him? And I was just upset. And um, I went off to uh, pray. I took some time not to, just being angry. And then I was like, oh, I really should. And then I went off to pray. And as, as I was praying, I was just overwhelmed by this reminder. Love is patient. Love is kind. And I thought, well, you know, I've been patient, you know. We've been dating for however many months now. And he doesn't get it. He doesn't get me. Um, and again, love is patient. Love is kind. It is not easily angered, you know. It's not provoked is another way of thinking about it. And I was provoked. Um, and as I, as I prayed and as I, as I wrestled with my own feelings and thoughts of, no, he's wrong, you know, I'm right. And I don't even know what it was about, but... More and more I prayed about it, I just came to the realization that I was the one who was not able to love well. No matter who started it, the fact that I was not able to love and forgive and and work with him through whatever situation it was, 
it showed my failure to love with patience and kindness and everything that uh, this passage was talking about. And um, the beauty of of being with a man who is godly is that while I'm doing this, he's doing the same thing, um, going to God in prayer and realizing the same thing. And you know, we were able to come together and just you know apologize and pray together. Um, and you know, of course, we fight again, like all healthy relationships. I think it's good to have good, healthy fights as long as you resolve them well. Um, and so, of course, there's conflict now too, but it just makes us realize more and more, one, the difficulty of loving one another, um, but two, how God's love gives us the motivation and the, um, I guess, the courage to stand in that tragic gap between what we want and what we know can be and what we are, to stand in that, that tragic gap and say, God, help me to love better. God, help me to receive this person's love instead of expecting them to be perfect, to, to, to receive it the way they can best give it to me and know that that's the best they can do at the moment because they're human too. Um, and to have the courage then to say, I'm going to choose to love anyway. And I'm going to choose to love others who are unlovable, who I really don't like. I'm going to choose to love the church, no matter how faulty it may be. I'm going to choose to love God, even though I don't understand you completely. To be to be able to have that courage and to and to actually act and make decisions um, because God is um, love is something that I think takes a while to perhaps realize, but once we begin to explore who Jesus is and the more we spend time with him and realize how much he loves and how he loves, what does it mean that he he's kind? And to actually go through the different stories in the Bible and look at the kind of love he provides, um, I think it's going to really change the way that we interact with others. And so what is love? I think love is Jesus Christ giving up the worship of angels to become a vulnerable human being, serving people who rejected him. What is love? I think it's Jesus Christ kneeling down to wash the dirty, smelly feet of his quarreling disciples. Love is Jesus Christ forgiving those nailing him on the cross. Jesus Christ loving those who betrayed him to the cross. And it's Jesus Christ dying for us while we were still impatient, unkind, envious, boastful, proud, self-seeking. Love is Jesus Christ believing in us despite our inability to love him and others. And love is Jesus Christ giving us the courage to stand and act in the tragic gap by not giving up on ourselves, on others, or on God. So I'm not really sure what each of your past experiences with love has been. And I don't know what your definition of love is. I look forward to finding out. But I pray that we would be open to learning what love is according to Christ. That we would be open to learning about um, a new way of love uh, loving and a new way of receiving love from Jesus Christ. Um, and I pray that as we have our discussion and as we um, challenge each other to think about a broader definition of love, that we would have the courage to accept and to act um, in the tragic gaps that exist in our lives and in our society. And that as a result, um, we as a, as a body, um, we as a group, we as individuals would be able to uh, share the love of Christ with the city of Melbourne. Thank you. So this song is um, um, 
one of Jinha's favorite songs, and she was like, can you learn how to play this song for me? And uh, I, I went and I learned how to play this song for her. And um, it's, it's written by Brandon Heath, and it's based off of 1 Corinthians 13. And as it's uh, Valentine's Day, this is kind of like, um, it's actually special music to Melbourne City Adventist Church. So happy Valentine's Day to you. The first picture is, well, it's for Jen Hoff, but anyway, happy Valentine's Day. Father, we want to thank you for your love, and we want to thank you for the love that was specifically poured out through Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross. And I pray that um, we'll come to understand and experience that love more every day. This is our prayer in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. 